Welcome to the IH Podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth, Coordinator for Faculty Programs. In this episode, Communication Specialist Melissa Clay speaks with Kumarini Silva, Assistant Professor of Communication, on her most recent book, Brown Threat, Identification in the Security State. She also discusses the origins of her research focus, as well as the importance of taking time out for friends and family. What are you going to be teaching this semester? I am really excited about the two classes I'm going to be teaching. One is a graduate course in cultural studies um, called Identity, the Political and the Popular. Hmm. Um, Tell me more about that. That is based on my own research interests. So I um, am really interested in what I call cultural cartography, looking at how particular conditions and objects relate to each other to produce the kinds of narratives we have in our society about identity. Um, So we are looking at kind of deep theory, but also... Um, looking at uh, popular culture and looking at the relationship between politics and popular culture. Mm-hmm. And Can you give an example of that? What does it mean that our president-elect uses Twitter hmm. as a way to communicate policy? And what does that do in terms of the way we see, view him, where are the world views him or international politics see him? Uh, what does it mean to have a particular representation of um, blackness on television, like Blackish? I don't know if you've seen the mm-hmm. sitcom yes. Blackish. So, on the one hand, I love Blackish, and I love the kind of political criticism and commentary that it makes. Yes. But I also spend some time in my own research talking and writing about the fact that Blackish is a representation that comes out of almost Cosby-esque history. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean for it to follow Cosby um, from the 80s and to be here at this particular moment? And I think it, it's much more critical and much more biting than Cosby ever was, right? Cosby was about showing black people how to be white. And I think blackish is not so much about those things and is a much harsher political criticism. So so those are the kinds of things they're going to be talking about and looking at. And then the other class is an advanced undergraduate feminist theory class. And we are going to be doing a lot of reading and writing on feminist theory. And what does it look like to examine feminist theory at this time? Well, I, it's interesting. I was thinking about this. And on the one hand, it I think... It's, it sends me, like, I want to curl up and be in fetal position. On the other hand, I feel really invigorated because with the election cycle, there was this idea that feminism, for a long time, not just the election cycle, but that feminism has arrived. Feminism has arrived. And now we are realizing that feminism has not arrived. And that we live in a sexist, racist, misogynistic culture that up until now, those who are most affected by it were the only ones talking about it. But now there's a whole another demographic that's affected by it and that that requires a different kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think those kinds of political 
moments or cultural contexts provide quite a lot of energy, um, at least for me as a teacher. So, What made you decide to examine communication in the way that you do? It's really interesting because part of it was I went into graduate school. I went into my master's program really thinking I need two more years to not be working nine to five. Um, so <laughs> That's I, common. <laughs> yes. So I thought, you know, I just, the school thing's working out really well, so I'm just going to go into that. And I realized through my master's program that issues of race really became very salient and interesting to me, partly because I had moved here just four years before that. Um, mm-hmm. And suddenly I was in Ohio in the middle of nowhere, and my own body had taken on these really interesting identities that I had heretofore never understood or seen as particular identities. Mm-hmm. And those things became really interesting to me. And so it was kind of a, a self-awareness that led to an interest in understanding race and um, gender, and then from there transitioning to a broader recognition that those conditions come from many con- external constructs that mm-hmm. I have very little control over and trying to understand what that means. So that kind of led to this continuing journey, I guess. Yeah. And your most recent book is uh, Brown Threat, Identification in the Security State. Yes. And that came out just in 2016, last year. In November of 2016, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. So a couple of months ago. Talk about that. How has that process been? So Brown Threat actually... Um, in, in the book, I map some of the ways that I came to that project. Um, and one of the things was that I uh, was a graduate student at the University of Oregon when uh, the attack happened in Washington, D.C. and in New York in 2001. And that process, I was writing my dissertation on something completely different. I was writing on social movements in India and Sri Lanka and um kind of connecting it broadly to the United States. But what I did was I, like when 9-11 happened, um, I started noticing how people were treating me differently, treating people who looked like me differently. Um, I started, you know, like many people started seeing the shifts in society, in media, and um, I just started archiving these things just randomly. And then after I finished my dissertation, um, I needed to completely not be doing my dissertation, so I started working on this project. Mm-hmm. So the book comes out of that archive that I had just randomly collected, but turned out to be really quite salient. And I say in the book, too, that you know one of the great tragedies of that research is that it's, it's the kind of research you don't want to be right about. I was in New York when September 11th happened, and I remember, and it wasn't, and I worked in journalism, and it wasn't widely reported how the immediate fear of groups of people just, yeah. it, and it, it was so surprising to everyone that it wasn't even reported. It was like, of course you're afraid. Yes. Almost. There was yeah. a, this, this, of course we're afraid, and so... Uh, gas stations were getting 
uh, targeted and I would be uh, about to get in the Midtown Tunnel and there would be all these trucks of anyone wearing a turban like pulled to the to side. To the side, yes, yeah. which was not very and part of democratic. In the, yeah, and I, I think it. one of the things I talk about in the book is how that post-9-11 patriotism actually animated long-held racist assumptions in the United States and that Trump's presidency is actually the culmination of that. And the book actually ends with, because when it went to press, he was only the candidate. And I end by saying that he will, you know, he's able to thrive because the country is not only uh, in its foundation racist, but in its very scaffold, the term I use is scaffolding, that it is held together, right? This this cage that holds us is fundamentally um, racist, sexist, and homophobic. And the part of that book that I, I think is also really was important to me was to kind of map out or tease out the ways that post-9-11 po- politics also affected historically marginalized groups. So what that did, for example, to African-American politics, um, which because what it did was to suddenly uh, imagine that uh, anti-black racism was no longer an issue because popular culture and politics both pushed aside issues of anti-black racism or uh, any kind of um, actions against um, disenfranchisement and just turned it into something that was Ameri- either you were American or not American. So when things like Trevon Martin happened, people were shocked. But but why? Mm-hmm. You know, that was always there. It's always been there. It never went away. It was as if, like, after 9-11, people weren't mean to black, you know, for the euphemistically mean to black people. And suddenly this was as if it was like something that emerged out of nothing. But that's not true at all. So that's what the book is. So I look at, actually I talk about blackish in the book. Mm -hmm. I talk about Harold and Kumar and their trip to Guantanamo. So it's partly about popular culture. It's partly, I look at news stories. I look at, I did um, a lot of ethnographic research. So it's partly storytelling. It's partly media criticism. Mm -hmm. Moving back to gender, we're recording this before the inauguration, and I wondered what your thoughts were about the Women's March in Washington. I think it's a fantastic idea. I think it's important. I know that it's been plagued with issues of race, um, and I'm very sympathetic to those. I think that the concerns that feminists of color brought up, I think, are very real because feminists of color in the United States have had to constantly remind other feminists that they are also at the table. But I think the march in itself is a really good idea. What I find really interesting about the whole thing was that when I initially, I actually had to disengage myself from the discussion, following the discussion because it was getting so crazy at some point, was and the crazy making for me was the fact that it was called the One Million Woman March at first. And right. there was this amnesia or complete lack of knowledge about what that meant and what it was like. 
what that meant in terms of co-optation. And the fact that that became a disclick, that people were asking each other on those discussion boards and the threads, well, what does that mean? Why can't we use it? Um, just, you know, was for the lack of a, a, I will very academically put it, it was just crazy making. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's nuts, right? I mean, but I think it speaks to kind of to bring it back full circle to the feminist theory class. I think that's why those that in in one sense I'm really invigorated by the fact that okay, there is a that like we do have to teach this stuff. There is a need for this these classes. They the humanities should thrive in times like this. Um, I think the arts and humanities are central to democracy in moments like this more so than every other any other time even though it is very central at other times too I think. <laughs> we have a series at the institute for faculty called difficult conversations mm-hmm. last semester we uh, had one centered around the issue of race and this semester we will be discussing gender and you are facilitating that why is it important for faculty to get together and talk about issues such as race and gender in a faculty-only environment? I think there are two responses I can give to this, and I think they're interwoven. I always have two responses to things That's great. or multiple responses to things. That's helpful. I think one thing is that I'm going to speak for myself, but I'm fairly sure that this is true of many faculty, that in at public events – we represent more than our own views. And we represent our departments, we represent our students, we represent, We are the public figures of very many groups of people that we stand in for. And I think that makes it difficult sometimes for us to have conversations that are difficult and that we have to moderate ourselves or uh, watch what we are saying even when there are criticisms of structures that impede our very existence. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is that there is something about community building, right? Like when we come together and we sit in a room and we are all, we are peers and we sit around a table, as is the habit for a lot of IH things. In my book, in my acknowledgments, I call it the magic table. But I think that there is something about having to look some appear one of your colleagues in the in the face and look into their eyes and like say this is something that I find validating or problematic and what is your response in hearing that and taking it for what it is and understanding that as a productive space um, and I think that we don't have many opportunities to do that I don't think we surprisingly are very uh, isolated. Faculty are isolated. We are pulled in so many directions uh, that um, give us very little time to connect with people across the university. I've been here five years, and I feel like I am only now just getting to know people. And I think you've spent the first you know, especially when you're untenured, you spend the first four years just scrambling <laughs> to survive. 
<laughs> and um, and in your fifth year, when your book is out, you come out for you come up for year and go, oh my God, there are other people. It's great, <laughs> right? Well, we're glad. We're certainly glad as, as part of our mission to to facilitate exactly that that the faculty get to see each other and talk to each other and share ideas. So with all this, the writing of the book and teaching classes and tenure, and how do you rest? What does that look like for you? I cook a lot (laughs) and have friends over a lot. Yeah, so that's what I do. I love to cook, and I love people sitting at my table. I have a 7-year-old, and she forces time allocation very differently. <laughs> I find community really important, uh, especially now, and I think there's real value to working on those things and building those things, and we have you know, found family here, and it's really lovely to have people come over and relax and share food. What is a book that changed your life? A book? Oh, do I just have to list one? <laughs> yes. You know, every book I read, the moment I'm done with it, I feel like it's changed my life. So I will Mm -hmm. tell you the book that I read most recently that I feel that way, which I just finished, The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. I don't know if you've read it, but it's remarkable. I have not. It's a magical realism book, but he takes the Underground Railroad to be a literal railroad that runs through, like, underground I love that because it's, when I first heard that as a child, I thought that's it was, what I, and then yeah. it had to be broken down. But it, to me. it yeah. also is like for me, what was amazing was yes, because it brought back this notion that oh my god, this is what I like. I remember thinking that, and and um, I think one of the things that he does beautifully is through fiction break down the f- fiction that racism was a north south issue, and that. Instead, he shows the complexity of what that racism meant, like the idea that, you know, the, this notion that we have that the North was against racism and the South was for racism. And he documents the very real activism that was happening in the South and the very real racism that was going on in the North and that none of these things are actually... Like nothing is, pardon the pun, and all black and white. Right. Right? Like this is not, you know, th- that it's a lot more complex. And the only truth in it emerges is that everybody wanted to, to get to Canada. It's just a fabulous book. I'm, I'm going to put that on my list. I just find him a really compelling writer. And it's written from, like, from state to state, like as the Underground Railroad travels. It's really lovely. So Full circle with the cartography, right? Yes. Taking that cultural cartography. And like the very last book I read, I think, oh, that's changed my life. I'll read another one by next week, and that would have changed my life. That will have changed my life. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. This was fun. I didn't want it to end. Check back at ieh.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. 
You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IH underscore UNC.